Let me just add my welcome to everyone if you're here in person or if you're checking us out online. We're glad you're with us, whether you're listening online in America or some other country around the world. We're really glad you decided to join us this morning. If this is your first time checking in with us, my name's Don. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at Grace. And uh, if you're new, we've been in a series uh, through the fall uh, on the first three chapters of Genesis. We dropped into a couple of sub-messages the last couple weeks on gender identity and sexuality, and today we're jumping back into the book itself. And so we are at chapter 3, and our text for today is chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and the title of the message today is A Deadly Invitation. Well, you know, invitations come in many types and forms. We get invitations to parties, invitations to weddings and showers, invitations to dinner or a show. But some invitations are specifically designed to be a means to tempt you to respond in some way. And I periodically get invitations like that in the mail or or by email. I mean, maybe it's some fantastic new diet plan where you can lose 40 pounds in the next three months or some phenomenal new company to invest in that's going to earn you 50 times its current value or or some invitation inviting me to something that will help me to become wealthy and prosperous and make vast sums of money, sometimes just in my spare time or with seemingly minimal effort. I mean, the following might be a typical example. Uh, This one, this ad is entitled, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Well, millionaire status is something you have to want and be willing to work towards. However, you don't have to work alone. In fact, you shouldn't. This person, I'll keep their name out of it, is coming to your area. Reserve your seat now. This individual is becoming known the world over as the millionaire maker. And the reason for this is that they have helped tens of thousands of people improve their financial conditions dramatically. And many of them have gone all the way to millionaire and multimillionaire status. Are you interested in learning how to truly become a millionaire? Give me a few minutes right now and let me explain. I am about to go on tour with a new seminar nationwide, and I want to personally invite you if you are truly interested in building your wealth. Here's just a taste of what you could learn at this seminar for free. And then he goes on and lists a number of things that will literally change your life financially. Then it picks up, the value of this seminar cannot be matched in anything even close, usually costs quite a bit. For this full one-day event from 9 to 4, I would normally charge $499. And the first thing that I have to tell you is that trying to become wealthy on your own is the wrong approach and one that will most likely fail. And I don't want you to fail. I want you to succeed and become a millionaire. In fact, I'm so dedicated to making this happen for as many people as possible that I am known as the millionaire maker in a lot of circles throughout the world. And my goal right now is to be known as the millionaire maker to you personally. 
Let me teach you how to become a millionaire because you want it and deserve it. I mean, how could you not entrust yourself into this person's hands who so clearly has your best interests at heart? Well, honestly, I can't know the motives or the integrity of this individual. I really know nothing about them or their business. But really, there are a number of similarities between this ad and our text for today in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Because both are primarily focused on the issue of temptation. As much as this individual has crafted this invitation to be a means of temptation to those who read it, this passage of scripture portrays another invitation that was carefully designed to create temptation. The results of which would lead to devastating consequences and loss for both the original actors in this scene, Adam and Eve, and for us as well. So let's read our passage together in Genesis 3, 1 through 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So in this passage, a new character comes on the scene. Into this perfect paradise and life of the garden comes the serpent. Now on one hand, the serpent is just one of the creatures that Adam had named. A snake who is subordinate to Adam's rule that extended over all the creatures God had made. But on the other hand, this is more than just an ordinary snake. There is an outside evil presence that is somehow connected with this particular snake. It's not completely clear how the two are connected It's not clear where this evil being came from or how he got there in the garden, but he is there. And we are put on alert in verse 1 to watch out because this serpent is described as crafty. Someone who you should be very cautious about. Someone who you need to watch very carefully what they say. And in a number of places throughout the Bible, we're told very clearly that this serpent is none other than Satan, the devil himself. We can see it in Revelations 12, verse 9. 
which says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So Satan has come in the form of this servant, serpent to give an invitation. An invitation to disobey God. An invitation designed very carefully and very specifically. An invitation whose purpose is temptation. And while there are some things about this temptation that are unique and cannot be repeated in our experience, there are many things in this passage that are that would describe our experience with temptation as well. So as we walk through this passage today, I want to draw out not only what is happening here in the garden, but I want to consider how this text teaches us about temptation that we would face in our own lives. Because just as that temptation in the garden was an invitation to sin and disobey God, just as the acceptance of that invitation led to destruction and loss, temptation works the same way in our lives. See, temptation is sin's personal invitation that, if accepted, will always bring destruction and loss. And that's really the big idea of the message today. Temptation is sin's personal invitation that, if accepted, will always bring destruction and loss. And so in this brief section of Scripture, there are three things we want to look at that help us understand some of the ways temptation works and show us that, if accepted, it always brings destruction and loss. So before we dig into this text, let's take a moment and ask God for his help. Lord, as we come to this pivotal text in this chapter, these chapters in Genesis, Lord, this is a turning point in this world and creation that you made. And Lord, we, we need your grace to be with us today that we might understand and be discerning as to how this took place, not only in this situation, but Lord, how the same principles and and powers are at work in our lives. And so we ask that you would be with us today. You would send your spirit to help me to speak faithfully and accurately your word and help all of us, Lord, open our eyes that we might see, that you might strengthen us, that you might help us to be more faithful to you, more obedient to you, that we might understand and discern the tricks and the wiles of temptation, that we could avoid them, Lord, and avoid this destruction and loss that so surely follows. So we ask you to do that for your glory and for the good of your people, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So first thing we want to consider about temptation from this passage is that temptation seeks to undermine and raise questions about the word of God. In this 
conversation that takes place between the serpent and the woman, there is a clear attempt to undermine and raise questions about God's word. What God has said to the man and the woman becomes a matter of debate. If we were to go back to Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, it says there, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so the serpent begins in verse 1 by distorting the truth of what God said. He says in verse 1, he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, clearly that's not what God said. But see, he is testing Eve's knowledge of God's word. And Eve, it seems, has not retained God's word clearly and accurately. Her response reveals weakness in her understanding and a lack of precision regarding what God said. We can see her response in verses 2 and 3. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. You see, in her response, she inaccurately represents what God said. She really minimizes the magnitude of God's gracious, loving provision by not mentioning how God has commanded them to freely eat of any tree but one. And she adds to the prohibition of don't eat by saying that they're not to touch it as well, making God seem more restrictive than he actually was. And then she weakens the certainty and severity of the penalty for disobeying by turning God's words. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die to a much less convincing lest you die. Small alterations, but changes that undermine the clarity and specificity of God's word. And so seeing the opportunity to take advantage of this vulnerability, vulnerability, this leads the serpent to blatantly denying the truth of God's word in verse 4. It says in verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. See, this weakness of the conviction and clarity of God's word makes Eve vulnerable to temptation. But God's word is undermined a second way in this passage as well, because temptation seeks to violate the order God has established by his word. See, God's word brought life, and it also brought order. And temptation seeks to twist or violate God's order of things. Notice how all the roles are reversed in this situation. The wife listens to the creature instead of seeking her husband's leadership and guidance. The snake is leading them 
in this situation. This is a creature who's designed to be under their dominion, not to lead them. And the man listens to his wife instead of God. Eve takes the lead in the initiative and Adam follows without hesitation. And, and don't think that he wasn't around when these events were unfolding. I mean, if we look at verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, Adam was apparently right there with her, witnessing this entire conversation. I mean, when the serpent speaks in this passage and he uses the word you, you is plural in this text. It is not singular. And the implication is that both Adam and Eve were present when this conversation is going on. See, what happened in that garden that day was first and foremost a failure in leadership. It's really interesting to observe how little mention there is of Adam in this text in light of the magnitude of his responsibility. I mean, that in itself is a picture of his failed leadership in this crucial moment. He is conspicuously absent in this dialogue, even though it seems that he is right there with her. See, Adam failed to fulfill his God-given role to care for and protect his wife. She should never have been the one leading in that moment. What Adam should have done, whether he was there for the entire conversation, he was clearly there at the moment that they decided to eat. He should have stepped forward and said, wait a minute, this is wrong. We can't do this. But he didn't. It was his responsibility to make sure God's word was obeyed. And whenever this account is referenced throughout scripture, it's always described in this way that Eve was deceived. But there's never any reference that Adam was deceived. And it seems that Adam willfully and knowingly made the choice to disobey what God had told them. And he was the one God held primarily responsible and accountable for the sin in the garden. He's the one who, when God came to address them on what they'd done, he didn't go to Eve, he went to Adam. The Apostle Paul says it also in Romans 5.12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Eve may have been the one deceived in this moment, but Adam was the one who should have stepped forward and stopped this from happening, and he's the one that God holds accountable for what happened that day in the garden. But just as in the garden, temptation will seek to attack us by undermining the clarity and importance of God's word, by twisting God's good order that is designed for our benefit and for our good. 
And if we're going to stand strong in the face of sin's invitations to us, we must respect the wisdom of God's order and how he's designed things. We must know the word of God well. We must be pursuing reading and studying to grow in our understanding and knowledge of it so we can know it and use it wisely in those times when temptation comes knocking at our door, as it most surely will. Second thing we learn about temptation in this passage is that temptation wants you to doubt the integrity and the goodness of God. See, temptation seeks to misrepresent God's character and his motives. If we look back at verse 1 when the serpent speaks to Eve, he says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? <clears throat> See, the serpent's words, they, they actually seem skeptical and surprised. It's like he's saying, Really? Did God really say this? See, even though he is inaccurate, he makes the idea seem outrageous. He appears shocked that God would do something like that. And he is subtly seeking to cast doubt on God's goodness. God's motives are being called into question. We see it again also in verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the serpent is implying that God has hidden motives for why he would not allow them to eat from this tree. God's integrity is being portrayed as suspect. The prohibition not to eat is being painted as something that is depriving them rather than as a blessing for their good. See, God is holding back from them. He's holding them back from being all they could be if they could just eat this fruit. God's commands are restricting their freedom and enjoyment of life rather than ensuring and protecting it. I mean, do you see what's happening here? God is being portrayed as selfish, jealous, repressive. He's being painted not as a loving, gracious provider, but as a rival, as someone who can't be trusted. And Adam and Eve were being told that there was a greater good that was being kept from them by God. See, temptation always seeks to cast doubt on the goodness and integrity of God. Sin always seeks to convince us that God's commands and his ways, they're not really for our best. There's something good that he doesn't want you to have. He doesn't really have your happiness and your best at heart. He's not really for you. He's holding back from you. And if we're going to resist the craftiness and deceptiveness of sins, personal invitations, we must hold fast to the truth that God has perfect integrity in all that he does. He is absolutely pure and perfectly good. 
All his words and actions toward us are always for our good. He is always for us. And all that he does and says is out of love toward us. And we must remember that and cling to it with all our hearts when temptation comes walking into our life, just as it did in this moment for Adam and Eve. And that brings me to the third thing that we can learn about temptation from this passage. And that is temptation highlights and distorts the attractions of sin while ignoring its consequences. If you've driven much, uh, in a, driven a car much, or even ridden in a car much, you would probably be aware that there are times when you come to stretches of road that might be particularly dangerous or hazardous in some way. Maybe there's a steep drop-off on the side or there's a, a lake or river or something that runs along the side of the road. And typically in those kinds of places where the road is treacherous or dangerous, there are guardrails that are put along the side of the road. And those guardrails are intended to protect you and to keep you from going off the edge of the road into the having some disastrous consequence as a result of that. And we wouldn't typically think of guardrails as being restrictive or limiting our freedom. We would tend to see them as protecting and caring for us. For instance, if you can pull up that picture for me, if you were, if you were driving on this road, you would probably feel pretty grateful that those guardrails were there. And you would see them as being protective and helping you stay on the path. And so as we drive down the road of our lives, there are two guardrails that protect us in the danger of the moment of temptation. Two guardrails that protect us from sin's attempt to run us off the road, so to speak. One is the guidance of God's word, and the other is our trust and confidence in God's goodness and the integrity of his character. And once these guardrails are removed, it's like being on that small winding road with no guardrails with sin sitting in the back seat, grabbing at the wheel, trying to gain control of it. You're in a very vulnerable position because sin is a master of deception. It is crafty, as the text says. And with no guardrails to safely restrain you, temptation begins to work directly on your desires to convince you to let sin take control. And it does this by highlighting and distorting the attractions of sin while doing all it can to divert your attention from the consequences that will come if you choose that path. See, temptation feeds you lies and half-truths that are aimed at deceiving you while engaging and stimulating your desires. And this serpent in Genesis 3, he is a master at this game. 
In verse 4, he says to the woman, you will not surely die. In other words, there won't be any consequences if you do this. Verse 5, he says, your eyes will be opened. You can be wise like God. He's seeking to manipulate and stimulate their desires. Their eyes would be opened, but not at all in the way they expected. And again in verse 5, he says, you'll gain what belongs to God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. And that was true in a sense as well. But they weren't created and designed to be like God in that way. And what wasn't said was how that knowledge would destroy their freedom and all that they had that was good. See, all the attractions of accepting this invitation are being highlighted and is distorted through these lies and half-truths. In other words, life will be much better and happier if you will just do this. John Piper says it this way. He says, sin gets its power by persuading me to believe that I will be happier if I follow it. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it will make me happier. That's what's going on here. Eve's attention is being deceptively drawn to all the wonderful things that will come from eating this fruit. We can see it in the beginning of verse 6. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. You see, her desires are painting pictures in her mind. And that's what temptation does. It paints visions in our mind of what life is going to be like if you will just listen to me. And those visions are lies. And they highlight the attractions and they downplay the consequences. Because see, she is in this moment ignoring the evil of her potential disobedience. She's no longer thinking about a concern that God told them there would be terrible consequences if she does this. And one of temptation's biggest lies is that there is no consequence for disobedience to God. But God could not have been more clear in Genesis 2.17 that their disobedience would surely bring death. And the same is true in our lives. James tells us in James 1.14 and 15, He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's the pattern. Take the guardrails away and temptation begins to work on our desires. And eventually, if we don't put an end to that, our desires get stimulated, they get 
they get enhanced and eventually we make a decision to listen to temptation and we act on that. And when we make that choice, sin manifests itself in our life. And when that manifestation takes place, James says, that leads to death. And when the Bible talks about death, it's not always referring to physical death or eternal death or really even spiritual death. But the Bible often talks about death in the means that it's a loss of life. It's losing out on what life could be. So death is a loss of real life, true life, what life has the potential to be. The loss of that is death. And sin always leads to death in that sense. And so these tactics that we see in the garden, they're the same ones that sin's invitations of temptation will use on us. It will seek to undermine and remove the guardrail of our trust in God's goodness as a gracious, loving provider. It will seek to undermine and remove the guardrail of God's word as a restraint on our choices. And it will then seek to deceive us, manipulating and deceptively stimulating our desires, highlighting and distorting the supposed benefits that will result from accepting sin's invitation while ignoring and diverting our attention from the consequences God says will surely happen at some point. See, there's part of the issue. Because the consequences of sin don't always happen immediately, we can often be deceived into thinking there aren't any. Solomon, who was considered to be one of the wisest, if not the wisest men that lived, said this in Ecclesiastes 8.11. He said, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. In other words, what he's saying there is because when we make a choice to do something sinful, the consequences don't always happen in our life right away. We lose the connection and we wind up deceiving ourselves thinking there aren't any. And we don't make the connection of how things in our life are all connected because it's not the immediate result of the choice. And so we think there's no consequences, so we can just keep on doing this. And there's nothing that we will have to pay in the end. And once temptation has successfully done its work here in the garden, the result follows quickly in this case. See it in verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You can see from the language in verse 6 that Eve has bought into the lies. So she saw that the tree was good for fruit, food. 
and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was to be desired to make one wise. She has bought the lies of the serpent at this point and acts on that and the results here are unexpected and immediate. Oh, Adam and Eve, they do no more now. They do know the reality of good and evil. But this additional knowledge has brought them into a personal involvement with evil. And there is an immediate loss of innocence and harmony. What was perfect and right before is now very wrong. Innocence has been replaced by shame. Mistrust and alienation have now replaced the security and intimacy they had previously enjoyed. The perfect life in the garden is now gone. And you know, this temptation in the garden is in one way really unique and foreign to our experience. See, because there's really no satisfactorily satisfactory explanation for this result. See, there was no inclination towards sin in Adam and Eve up to this moment. Their inner nature was inclined wholly toward obedience and trust in their creator. Why did they do this? And there really is no clear answer to that question. It is a mystery. But because of their choice to disobey, that external presence of sin with its personal invitation of temptation that manifested through that serpent in the garden has now become an inward reality in all of mankind. Unlike Adam and Eve, whose inner nature was originally wholly inclined towards obedience and trust in God, our inner human nature is now inclined towards the disobedience and rebellion against God that characterized that first sinful choice in the garden. We ever live with the reality of sin and temptation that dwells within our very souls. But you know, as tragic and destructive as this account of the first sin is for all of humanity, there is good news in this story as well. Because you see, this story shows us that sin and evil were not part of man's original design. They are inhuman, so to speak. They are alien intruders who have shackled and enslaved our souls ever since that first sin in the garden. And in that reality, there is Because if sin and evil were not part of our original makeup, there is the possibility and hope of redemption. That God would make a way to restore the good of his original creation. That in his grace and mercy, he would make a way to rescue lost fallen people from the power of sin and death and the devil that he would provide a way to redeem us and bring us back to what we were intended to be. 
You see, Adam was the first representative of all mankind. And in his responsibility as the representative of humanity to obey God, he failed. And his failure led to the consequences that every human being would bear that would ever be born after that as we would be born as fallen creatures because of his choice. Because of his failure, we're all living in the bondage of sin and evil. But you see, God has sent forth a second representative. One who came to undo the first man's failure. And this time, God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into this world in the form of a man. And Jesus came to be a second representative of humanity. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, Jesus came to be a second Adam, a second representative of humanity. And where the first Adam was tempted and failed, Jesus, as the second Adam, did not. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, he says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. See, he lived a perfect, sinless life, never once giving in to temptation. And then he gave himself to die on a cross in our place, to pay for all our sins, for all the times that we did. And for those who will trust in him, he purchases our forgiveness and then gives us his perfect righteousness that he earned in his life of perfect obedience. The Apostle Paul again tells us in Romans 5, 19, says, for as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. See, God invites all people today to turn from letting sin and temptation have their way in your life. And to put your faith and trust in Jesus and what he did. To put your hope in him as your savior. That he might become your personal representative. So that your sins can be forgiven. So that all the favor and blessing he earned in his perfect sinless life might be given to you. That you might become one of the many, it says in Romans 5.19... One of the many that will be made righteous because of what he did. And so that you can be reconciled back into a personal relationship with God, your creator, and live forever with him. So that you can be restored back to the intent God had in making humanity in the first place. And so if you happen to be here today or listening online, whether in America or some other country, 
and you've never seen your need for a Savior, you've never understood that ever since that first moment in the garden, we've been separated from God, we've been headed towards eternal destruction because we're born into the fallenness of Adam. If you've never seen your need for a Savior to see Jesus and what he did, that he did it for you, God invites you today. He says, you can come. You can come and put your faith and trust in him. And his death will pay your, for your sins. And his perfect sinless life will be credited to you. He will become your righteousness. But that's not all. If I could have the worship team come. If we have trusted in Christ as our Savior... Because of his victory over sin and death, because of his resurrection, because he has sent his spirit to live within us, the power of his resurrection life is at work in us as believers. There is help available to us in our battle against sin and temptation. See, we are not on our own in this fight. Right after Hebrews 4:15, where it talks about how Jesus was tempted as we are yet without sin, how he can sympathize with our weakness, how he's the perfect high priest. In the next verse, verse 16, it says this. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the context here is in our own struggles with sin and temptation. Where Jesus was tempted and never gave in, he offers help to us in our struggles with temptation. And so we must, by God's grace, resist the power of sin with its many invitations of temptation. Knowing that God cares for us and his wisdom is always best for our good. We must be satisfied with what he provides and calls good. Ever aware of sin's strategies to manipulate and carry away our desires. Ever aware that disobedience always brings consequences that are destructive and harmful. No matter how attractive the pictures or visions that temptation wants to paint in our minds may be always remembering that we have a great Savior who is with us and wants to help us in our time of temptation. And his mighty power is at work within us to help us in the struggle against sin and temptation. So where is your battleground of temptation? I mean, maybe it's something like lust or pornography I mean, maybe it's being dishonest in some way. Maybe it's something like gossip or some other issue with your speech. Maybe it's something like bitterness or resentment and a struggle you have in that area. Or maybe it's something else. Where is the personal battleground of temptation in your life? See, in our daily struggle, We have a mighty Savior who comes to our aid to strengthen us and give us grace and mercy to help 
in our time of need. So let us look to him in that moment of temptation. And let us always remember, sin is not your friend. Temptation does not have your good on its agenda. Temptation is sin's personal invitation that if accepted will always bring destruction and loss. So let's close by standing and singing this song just in gratefulness for what God has done and giving him the praise.